here's the crazy stat. In the United States, if you're born in poverty, 16 out of 100 people are out of poverty by the age of 30. Only 16 out of 100 in the United States. Sam, in Memphis, that number is six. Six out of 100 kids born in poverty will be out of poverty by the age of 30. That is crazy. In, in the zip codes where our schools are, it's one to two percent. One to two kids out of every 100 kids in the last 50 years born in poverty are out of poverty by age 30. Hey, everybody, and welcome. I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. This show is filled with wide-ranging conversations that will bring you insights, experiences, and expertise through the stories of what each of my guests are building. Driven by Podcast is produced by Driven by Sam Coates. And for more information on how my talented team and I serve entrepreneurs, corporations, and private families tell their stories, go to drivenbysamcoates.com. Also, for more podcast episodes and to sign up, go to drivenbysamcoates.com backslash podcast. And be on the lookout where I have a new website dropping soon for the corporate and private work I do. Before we get going, let's hear from this week's sponsor. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. My guest this week is John Carroll. Lately, I've wondered how do you confidently promote a city that has significant issues? John is behind the highly successful grassroots nonprofit Choose 901 and city leadership out of Memphis, Tennessee. What started as a bootstrap nonprofit over a decade ago has now evolved into one of the top promotional brands in Memphis. The National Center on Charitable Statistics says that 30% of nonprofits fail to exist after 10 years. Given that this nonprofit was bootstrapped and now operates on a $2 million plus annual budget, I thought this would be a meaningful conversation. This is a great episode that covers the power of social media and attracting talent to a city you love and where you need to fill jobs. Redefining progress. Do we understand the problems clearly and are we making progress on those problems? Building a grassroots organization and becoming an expert to others around the United States, plus a lot more. Please enjoy this week's episode with John Carroll. John, man, thanks for doing this. Great to see you. Hey, man, I'm pumped. Thanks for having me. I did not realize the impact and the touch points that Choose 901 and City Leadership has until we had lunch a couple weeks ago. And then before that, 
when I was at AutoZone and for one of their national conferences, kind of on their bucket list was to get Choose 901 shirts. It wasn't until then to where I realized, what am I missing? So could you maybe share up to date, how broad is your touch? Well, it's it's a lot broader than we ever anticipated for it to be, Sam. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's funny, Choose 901 was created to reach college students that didn't live in Memphis or the parents of college students uh, that lived in Memphis, but the, you know, they're, uh, but they were the parents of, of current college students uh, and kind of those two different audiences. And it convinced them that after college, they should move to Memphis. And so, uh, and so we thought we need to communicate with about one to 2000 people really directly a year uh, to try to get filled these uh, three to 400 kind of post-college positions in Memphis every year. And this is 10 years ago. So I thought, man, if we're going to communicate real clearly to 1,500, maybe 2,000 college students, then we probably need 10,000 college students to be on our website every year. So that was kind of our big goal. Could we get 10,000 college students or their parents to be on our website every year? And uh, when after a couple of months, uh, we started realizing that there was, you know, 10, 15,000 people on our site every month. And then after the first couple of years, when we started realizing that there were hundreds of thousands of people checking out the good news about Memphis uh, through our media every single year. Man, we start realizing like, man, this has gotten a little out of control. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, this is a pretty complex, uh, serious deal uh, that we're doing here. And it was all just kind of a digital brochure, uh, so to speak, at the beginning. But uh, we've got a lot of people uh, looking at uh, uh, Memphis uh, through the lens of Choose on a One these days. How have you had optimism? How have you had excitement when, from what I see, Memphis is one of the slowest growing job markets with 2.9% employee population growth from a Bloomberg study in 2019, one of the slowest population growths of cities from 2012 to 2017 at minus 0.4%. So I'm not saying this to dwell on the negativity, but from your standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, but how do you do your work in trying to recruit people here when Memphis is often in the headlines for things that are not good? Well, I don't want to sound counterproductive in the fact that I want more negativity and want more bad, but uh, I create you as not a one dot to recruit people to do good here, right? So every major city has problems, uh, but you know what's interesting is, is that our problems uh, are actually a recruiting tool to recruit impactful, positive people here to be a part of those solutions. And so, you know, as I've looked at it, especially whether it's, you know, education, poverty, crime, uh, healthcare, different kind of stuff like that, you know, we're looking for people who want to make an impact. And what's interesting about Memphis is, you know, we're really off comparatively to uh, the other cities, our size and scope on just the scale of the problems we have in the sense that we have a high percentage, uh, a higher percentage of problems than other places. And so uh, there's a lot of frontline space uh, for people who want to make an impact to come in and, and, and be impactful. Uh, and then it can be significantly involved. Uh, but we're also at a size and scale that if someone wanted to address homelessness, uh, they could come to Memphis and they could figure it out for a whole city where you can't do that in New York or San Francisco, or LA, or even like an Austin, Texas, like, it's just way too big. The homelessness problem is just 
way oversized for any one person to make a noticeable impact. They can make an impact, but not like a macro impact. And so what's interesting about Memphis is, is that our problems, for people who want to solve problems at scale, you can actually solve them here in a really unique way uh, at a scale that's actually something formidable and teachable to every other city in the world. And so, um, so I get excited about those kinds of things. Um, on the economy kind of stuff, like obviously all those different numbers can be hedged in different kinds of ways, but are we making progress? Yes. And I think that um, I can always have optimism when we understand our problems clearly and we're making progress on those problems. And as long as that's happening, I'm okay with it. And then just realizing that uh, I'm not here to live in a utopia. Uh, I'm actually here in Memphis and attracted to Memphis in a way because uh, it's got significant problems where I can you know, love my neighbors well through that and, and try to address it. Uh, I'm not looking for a place to consume and criticize. I'm looking for a place to create and cultivate. And, uh, and that's what I'd like to do here. And, and that's what I'd like to encourage other people who want to do the same to join us here. Do. Are you from here? No. You know, I'm from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, from right outside Nashville. And so um, uh, not from here and, and, and never really planned on being here. I uh, just kind of ended up here on an accident for a while and, uh, and then just fell in love with the place. So what do you love about it? So <clears throat> I grew up in Murfreesboro, as I was saying, and when I was growing up in Murfreesboro, Nashville was not the Nashville you know it is now, right? Nashville was uh, sleepy and boring, and there was nothing aspirational about going there or living there. None of my friends talked about moving to Nashville. Um, but we did talk about going places where there was actually something to do. You know, uh, Murfreesboro was a small town. Uh, in the way that uh, we lived in it, too, it was just it just was a small town. It was a hometown. And so you knew everybody, but, man, it was boring. There was nothing to do. So, like, Taco Bell on a Friday night, the parking lot, that was a cool thing to do, right? And after college, I moved to Dallas. Uh, I was in the Dallas Metroplex area uh, for four or five years. And, man, there was everything to do. I don't know if you've ever been to Dallas, but, like, it has everything. Literally every sports, every art, every music every whatever um, but man everywhere you went uh, you were never alone but it always felt lonely it never felt like you were connected to people I mean you could go out and do five events five nights in a row and never see the same people ever um, and so it was also disconnected and so there was a real hollowness inside of Dallas and in fact when I was growing up if you could have told me that I was going to live in Dallas I would have thought thankfully stuff to do, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I had no idea how lonely not having community to share that with was part of the context. And so when I moved to Memphis, I moved here where I thought it was going to be for a year, maybe two for business. And but what I really found out was, is that man, it had all these big city amenities that I love, like pro sports and, you know, Orpheum and the arts and the amazing parks and the awesome restaurants and the incredible sunset. But it also had this hometown feel where like, you know, you go in a restaurant, you see people you know, you can't get to your grid seats before tip-off because you keep getting interrupted. And you have these this real community you feel like you share it with. And that's really unique as somebody now who studies and works in cities, right? Like, man, there are there are not five cities in the United States that have as many amenities that Memphis has and has an authentic possibility to have like an authentic hometown feel community. And the blend of that is exactly what I want. They may not be what anybody else wants or what other people want, um, but that's why I fell in love with Memphis is because I've got all the amenities I want 
and the real community that I just have to have and need. Let's say we didn't know each other and we were at a bar at a restaurant in another city and we had just met. How would you describe that? (laughs) That's a great question. I think one of the things I would say is, is that it's not just that you know who people are, you feel known by people and you feel like you actually know them. And then that knowledge makes you actually care. And so one of the things I say about Memphis a lot is that, man, the reason why crime is significantly painful in our community is because it's a small enough place where we, we, we feel like it's actually attainable that, that, that crime shouldn't happen for some reason, <laughs> even though big cities, all big cities have crime and that kind of stuff. But almost everything, you feel like you're like one, maybe two degrees away separation from, you know, something negative happening to somebody, right? And so, and, and so you feel that pain because you're like, you're in community and connection to that. The other side of that's also true, right? Like when someone in town, like their company goes public or a teacher gets nominated for teacher of the year or a, a restaurant is featured on the Food Network, it's not like you've got to figure out like, where is this person at? Or who is this person? It's also that community, right? So you also feel a celebration and a pride in a different kind of way that I did not feel in Dallas whatsoever, right? Like I was totally unaware of the crime that was happening there and felt no connection to it whatsoever. And would have never, like if something happened, I would have not even known how to be sorrow for that other than the fact that it was just crime. And the same way was for the success. Uh, I didn't know how to celebrate anybody who was supposedly successful. There's all sorts of success in Dallas. I didn't know any of them. And I didn't, you know, honestly, see, you just grow not to care. And that leads towards an apathy that leads towards that consume and criticize kind of culture. And there's something here about Memphis that, man, everything matters more. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, it matters more. And a part of that is the community connection that is real and authentic. So you're saying Memphis is a special place because it's still relatively small from a major city's population standpoint, but of the things to do, the activities, the buzz, the excitement, you get a unique dynamic there that most people don't get to experience. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And it's not that it's just relatively small. It's overconnected in the proportionally, I guess. I don't know what the right way to say that is, but does that make sense? Like, like, there's more connections here per capita or something, right? It feels like, and let me tell you, people feel that when they come here. You know, I hosted a, a conference of, you know, 300 CEOs um, or so a couple of years ago, right before COVID uh, here in Memphis. And man, this network of the people, and as they came to town, people were, you know, from that group were just totally blown away at how connected the city was and how interconnected it is. And a lot of them just express that to me then and still talk about it, right? Like as I connect with them over the years, it's just so amazing how people are connected and care for each other and know each other, like whatever, and just what a superpower strength that is for our community. And so, um, and whether they come from a bigger city or from a city similar in size or even smaller, uh, we just seem to uh, outpace uh, what should be normal (laughs) in some of that. Earlier, what I felt like I heard you say was, I don't really care what exactly all the metrics are. What I care about, I see opportunity, optimism. And if you feel like things are getting better, 
and they're moving in the right direction. That's all I really care about. Well, I mean, I, obviously I care about the results, but I, I come from a place where I, I believe that I'm supposed to be making the energy and effort to love others and to um, make an effort and to, and to try to solve problems and then allow my, you know, my faith to just hold up a, how the outcomes uh, play out are not really up to me. Does that make sense? And so, so there's some of that where I can't control all those kinds of things. But I do believe that uh, if we want to get to a place of change, we have to get to a tipping point. And the only way to get to a tipping point is to make progress. And so let's make progress. And so um, I want to keep things moving towards the right direction. You know, avalanches start uh, through a snowflake rolling up with another snowflake and another snowflake and a snowball and that snowball, whatever. And ultimately you get to an avalanche and, you know, we can't get to an avalanche without some snow rolling up. Right. And so as long as I'm seeing progress moving, I'm hopeful one day we'll have the avalanche change. Have you always been that optimistic? Probably. Uh, it's an interesting question. I think that I've always just been hopeful and uh, a desire for that. I think that, um, yeah, I think so. I think, uh, I think that I just believe that things are possible. I think I'm really future oriented for sure. And so, you know, I, I think that comes with its own weaknesses, but I think that my, my, my thought would be is that no matter how, you know, bad yesterday was that today can be progress towards uh, something better. And I think that's maybe just how I'm wired. Pretty incredible. So was there another market or another organization that you're aware of that you tried to model after when you started? Well, you know, Choose Not a One, obviously being a campaign of city leadership, it has some other orgs out there that they kind of do similar type of things or other campaigns that, you know, kind of fall into some of those kinds of things. Uh, or that look a lot like ours, they may not have the same core purpose. They may be for-profit or uh, they're usually maybe a part of like either a, a tourism bureau or a chamber of commerce, or maybe they have a very niche, one specific social purpose. And so, you know, for us uh, being a nonprofit campaign with a plethora of social purposes and not being connected to a chamber or a tax base or a hired out deal. Our Choose Not a One campaign is is unique in that fact and uh, is a model for other people uh, in that space. Now, city leadership, uh, we haven't found any peers directly. There are nonprofits that exist to do you know some city based work. A lot of them are really more focused into again a, a very specific niche of a social service, or they are more business oriented in the sense of that they do consulting out of that space. But like, you know, when I started city leadership, it was really just kind of my side hustle, kind of side deal, you know? And so I was, you know, had another job and I was, it was a part, it was kind of a part of that job and kind of whatever we're doing. And then, uh, and then over time I thought, man, what if I did this all the time? You know, and uh, and I'm uh, a for-profit entrepreneur guy, and so I had other streams of income and other things that I was working on, and this was a way for me to give back and care and that kind of stuff. And I'd kind of made it look like my full-time job, but really, um, man, this kind of idea of consulting nonprofits and bringing them business principles uh, in a way where we don't charge them money, uh, but we just uh, kind of help 
you know, that's a really unique space. And so the model ended up being, hey, what if we raise money as a nonprofit uh, to give ourselves away to other nonprofits? And then we help those nonprofits do good uh, through that. And and that really, that model is, is confusing even to nonprofits in some ways, right? right. Uh, but, uh, and then the big test always became is how do we discipline ourselves to maximize us as a, as a uh, scarce resource to its highest and best purpose. And so, you know, over time, it took some time to learn how to do that really well. And then over time, it's become, you know, it's gone from, hey, help the good guys do good to really think through, man, how can we be focused for the real betterment of the city in the macro? So you came in the very beginning, you said that there was three to 400 positions that you were trying to recruit for annually, and you wanted essentially to be in contact with one to 2,000 people a year, but then you soon realized that you were touching 10,000 people a year. Oh, 10,000 people a week, a month, or easy, right? Whatever. So like, you know, back in the day when we started this, so, so I started City Leadership in 2010. I came up with the idea for Choose 901 in 2011. I'd been meeting with some nonprofit clients, asking what they needed help with, and they were saying they needed help recruiting some college students. And so I came with the idea of like, well, what if I did, what if I did like a collective marketing campaign and really answering the real question, right? Like what I discovered was, is that the people in college that wanted to do these social work and teaching and education and government roles like that we had offered here in Memphis, that there were enough of those people that wanted to do it. They just needed to know where these jobs were. That actually, I didn't have to get into the business of persuading someone to, you know, not do something else. Like there were people who wanted to make a difference, especially for a season of their life. That was the big marker that I had to realize was that uh, you didn't have to recruit people for the rest of their life. You only had to ask them to, hey, what if you gave one, two, four years into helping out and then you could go whatever. And a lot of these people were looking to delay that decision and thinking through that model. And so what I had to do is I had to come, had to make people aware of the opportunities in Memphis. And then once you are aware of the opportunities in Memphis, the real battle was realizing that people had this opportunity in every major city in the United States. Like you could be a teacher in every major city or TFA had a bunch of locations or you could do a social work or you could do all this kind of stuff. So we had to answer the question, if there's an opportunity in Memphis, will I enjoy doing that in Memphis? And so that's why I talked about all the positive things in Memphis in all this sorts of way, because it helped people understand like, oh my gosh, I can go teach for two years in Memphis and they have all these great food and nightlife and, you know, bike lanes and parks and uh, basketball and arts and unbelievable sunsets and all this kind of stuff. So like, so it was just that because a lot of these people were just unaware. What we found in our data was, was that over 80% of college students were completely neutral on their opinion on Memphis. They just didn't know anything about it. So we, we took that as a blank canvas and we could market those kinds of things. Well, What ended up happening was, is I was trying to get college students and it was really, really fun back then. You could buy ads in in, uh, Facebook back then where like I could pinpoint a specific dorm building or in a specific apartment complex around a college and you would only cost you money if somebody clicked on your ad. And so we could get really, really pinpointed to 
area colleges and specific places where, you know, even 20, 21 year olds actually might live on campus. And so our ads were so laser focused. So I knew where our traffic was coming. And so we were measuring like how many people in Oxford, how many people in Starkville, how many people in Fayetteville, how many people in Knoxville were, you know, were coming onto our website, you know, uh, Memphis and Nashville and and Murfreesboro and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so we were measuring that kind of deal. And so we had some goals around that. And so as we were starting doing, it's like, Oh, we had a thousand people this past month in our area colleges. Oh, also there was 500 Memphians. That's kind of cool. And then the next one's like, Oh, we had 1,100 people in our college area. That's awesome. That's really good traffic. Oh, it's weird. We had 1,000 Memphians on our website. And all of a sudden, man, it went from like two, 3,000 know, college students looking at our stuff to all of a sudden 12,000 Memphians, right? 15,000 Memphians, 20,000 Memphians. And what's really funny is, is back in the day, we were talking about all this stuff happening in Memphis, but we wouldn't put like directions or necessarily like open times. Because the real thing was we weren't trying to get somebody from Knoxville to like come to an event that weekend. We just wanted them to be able to see their life and kind of go, oh, if I live there, there's music festivals and that kind of stuff. And we started getting questions into our website to be like, hey, what time is this? And how do I get there? Or what, what are their hours? How much does it cost to go there? And I'd be like, wow, these people are really interested. And we started realizing, no, no all these inquiries are coming from inside of Memphis. Wow. <laughs> so, then we, so then we started wrestling. Oh my gosh, we got all these Memphians that are one driving this. And we honestly realized we were filling what at the time was a massive void of the positive optimism things that were happening here, that there wasn't really a large media presence for all that positivity and all the Memphis stuff. And so Memphians were really clamoring for and looking for this kind of information uh, with this tone and with this kind of stuff. And so they really identified with it and it just took off and has become, I mean, our brand association saturation rate is next to the Grizzlies, right? So, I mean, as in knowledge base around the city. Next to the Grizzlies. Yeah. So, I mean, like, obviously Grizzlies are, you know, perpetuated, right? Like it'd be hard to find somebody in Memphis who doesn't know what the Grizzlies are. I'd say, you know, below that, it's hard to find, um, you know, several other brands that aren't government institutions that uh, that would have a more uh, a f- further reach um, into the into the city. Then choose nine hundred one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What'd you do right? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I think one is is we didn't mean to do that. That wasn't our goal. So some of it is, is, you know, what I do right. Well, I, I wasn't nervous about trying to, if I was trying to do that, I probably would have done it wrong. Honestly, <laughs> if, if I, if I would have started off with the goal of how do I get everybody in Memphis to know what we're doing, whatever. But I think the things that I did right, I'll put to this thing is that we, we wrote this thing we were creating at the very beginning where it said, Hey, we were going to unashamedly and proudly talk about Memphis but we were not going to do any BS. And, and, uh, and our belief was, is that the people we we're targeting get advertised to all the time. And, you know, you think about it. I don't know exactly what the, what the story was. This was like 10 years ago. I remember us reading this thing that was like the average person in America is exposed to more advertisements in a day than a person 150 years ago was exposed to in their lifetime right? It's something like that. And basically the theory was, was that, hey, 
everyone reading this stuff, like they are trained to try to read through stuff and understand, is this person trying to lie to me, trick me, you know, whatever. And so we just said like, hey, we're just going to, we can't exaggerate. We can't over uh, estimate. We can't make promises that we can't back up. So we've just got to always talk really, really clearly. And then part of that was, we always thought it was like, if we talk really, really clearly, uh, what is our real role here? And then at the very beginning, especially, we didn't create anything. We just took a spotlight and shined it on things in Memphis that we thought were really, really cool. And we created a megaphone that we let Memphians speak through and share in. And so people are all the time like, man, I thank you for all you've done for the city. I'm like, I, I didn't really do anything. I just pointed out to you the things that Memphis was already doing. You know, like Memphis was already super cool. Memphis already had amazing leaders. Memphis already had all this kind of stuff. We just kind of were trying to show it to college students around the country and we inadvertently ended up educating a couple hundred thousand Memphians. <laughs> was that campaign successful in recruiting college students? No, it was. I think, you know, our goal was uh, multiply faceted, but we had, we had orgs that had enough quantity of applications, but not the right quality. We had orgs that did, had the right quality, but not the right quantity. And so um, leveraging that kind of those things together and brand them together is successful. It doesn't replace anybody else's uh, recruiting or marketing plan. I think that what it does is it adds to it and authenticates it in a way. And I think the other piece is, is that when people are signing up to do Teach for America, they get to pick what city they're going to do that in. Well, being able to leverage things like Choose 901 uh, in that marketing uh, for them to be able to get people to rank it higher on their list. Not only did they say that would be helpful, like it's statistically helpful. Like it radically changed, you know, the number of people that were even listing Memphis in not only in their top 10, but in their top three, which creates our bigger issue, which is not just recruiting people here, but retaining them after they do their stuff, which that's the that's part of creating the tipping point, not just changing these people out annually, but building up uh, this type of people, uh, whether they come from some other city or they come back home or they stay home to do this kind of work. Uh, that was kind of the original goal. How did you prove that statistically? Did it help? bump up Memphis on people's lists for Teach for America or med school or whatever it might be? Oh, they just showed me. I mean, like originally when we started the work, you know, like if there were 50 Teach for America people, you know, we could go in there and be like, how many of you listed Memphis in your top three, right? And so uh, maybe 15 would raise their hand. How many of you listed Memphis at all on your top 10? Right. And so um, maybe another 15 would raise their hands. So, so when we were working on retention efforts, you know, you got all these college graduates from around the country coming here and teaching and they move here. And within two years, their, you know, their retention when we first started was, I think, below 30 percent people staying after their two year commitment. And I thought, man, golly, if we could get that to 65, 70%, that would radically change education and stuff and just Memphis in general, more college degree people and that kind of stuff, especially as TFA was trying to get from 40, 50 people a year to 150 people plus a year. And so I was like, man, if, you know, getting 70% of 150 people uh, to change. And so 
then over time, as we did a bunch of different things with them, everything, I mean, we even created their own website, which is a different piece of the puzzle, but like Teach for America Memphis was the first branch of uh, TFA to have its own website. And then nationals called me to model their website nationally off of the website that we created for them. But we were able to see in the rankings and, you know, all of a sudden now then you'd have 85% of the people showing up with ranking Memphis, their top three, what's a lot easier to keep people here uh, if they wanted to be here in the first place. And the reality is, is the most helpful thing to keep people here is that for them to live like Memphians during the season of life that they're here. And if they want to be here, they're more likely to actually engage in Memphis uh, instead of just coming here and doing Teach for America. And once people really engage in Memphis, well, then Memphis does its work and wins people over anyways, right? So you, you just have to get out of the way. <laughs> hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. Have you been frustrated or have you been really pleased or has that changed with the corporate support that you've gotten for the momentum that y'all have created? That's a great question. And, And I think that in some ways I've been surprised on both sides of that. Yeah, at some points, you know, like I'll have people say to me like, they really recognize this work, you know, and they see how important it is and it's flattering and um, it's been encouraging, but I like, I'm like, man, this person, this woman, this leader, you know, this man, they even know that I exist. They even know that we're doing this. Like, that's really incredible. Right. Like, and, and, and then on top of that, that they know, you know, they take the time to say something extremely kind about the energy and the effort that we're putting into it. And that is probably 80% of my interactions over time. And now, you know, I'm a little less surprised now, but it's still, you know, flattering and so whatever. You just be, oh my gosh, like, you know, but especially at first, you know, when you'd have people, you know, you'd see people wearing stuff like, and then other times I think uh, the surprising thing is not that people don't support it. It's just that they don't realize uh, how helpful what we're doing could be for their work. And that if they actually joined the movement of everybody working together in this sort of space, that not only would it, would that even be more helpful to j- jump in the stream and kind of go with the flow and, and be engaged in that for their work, that they would actually add to the momentum of everybody else's work. Right. And so I, I guess, you know, maybe one out of five conversations I have, I'm surprised that I have to 
you know, try to talk people into this uh, or try to get people to see the power of what it would be like to all partner together on something significant like this. Is Choose None of One the most successful example of what can happen from a collective standpoint with the city and appeal and positive stories and opportunity from a grassroots effort? Mm. Maybe that caveat that you put on it into the grassroots effort would maybe make me say yes. I think, you know, obviously, you know, I'm here and, uh, and, and I get, I get a lot of opportunity to evaluate or look at uh, other programs around the country because as people find out what I do and one of the things that I'm working on, they will look at that and, and tell me about something that happens in their city or in their area and they'll get me to look at it or talk about it or different kinds of stuff. And so, so I don't really spend a lot of time pursuing those, but they kind of end up in my lap, uh, so to speak. And I do get, you know, a lot of calls from cities or uh, philanthropic organizations or chambers asking me to advise or consult on how to do some of those kinds of things uh, in that kind of way. But I do think that that ours is uniquely uh, interesting in the fact that uh, that it is really grassroots, right? Like, and, and don't get me wrong, there's some other really cool things happening right now. You know, the We Are Memphis campaign that, um, you know, that I was, a, I'm on the board of and we're trying to create has its own angle of positively talking about Memphis. You know, uh, the I Love Memphis blog obviously is a d- department of our tourism uh, stuff uh, that's happening here and has its own funding and purpose and, and uniqueness. But what we're doing around trying to activate people to invest a season of their life uh, for other people or trying to engage people to love and appreciate their city in a way that is like contagious and infectious and, and positive into the space. It's not just about like helping small business owners make it, right? Or helping people find a, a cool place uh, to try a cocktail or a craft beer or, um, you know, a cupcake, right? Like those are all things that are fun. But the underlying purpose is we all have ownership in this community. And if we live and act in a way that uh, that respects and, and does that, that that's really, really powerful. And now as we look at this next season of trying to figure out, you know, how do we activate optimism we, we continue to not really have a peer of leveraging this kind of work for our specific kind of purpose. And that's what makes it probably the most successful of any of its type. Is it the most successful way to do something? I don't know. Time will tell, right? Like, like we may have done something completely wrong and, and not done it right. And maybe 10 years from now, I'll be like, oh, we should not have done that. We should have done something else. But it's probably the you know uh, the largest scaled uh, city movement program of its type, leveraging this strategy of wrapping people around information that they want to find uh, that leverages them towards being actively optimistic and positive in their community in a way that that changes people's lives. I mean, have there ever been any times where you thought you might be done, where you might not have raised the money, or you know, when when I started this. I didn't know it was going to be all of this, right? So not only, right, like I didn't realize that I was going to be stewarding uh, all of this. And uh, honestly, I didn't realize I was going to be working with this many people and we were going to have this many kind of stuff. Like it was really like when I started City Leadership, 
the thought was is what if me and maybe me and a couple other people are this kind of like covert consulting firm that's helping other people. And we were raising our money, almost like raising our support. In the same way you think about like a missionary raising support to go to some other country and help out, we were raising our support, raising our budget so that we could give ourselves away to Memphis. And so um, Memphis was our mission field, so to speak, and and specifically people working to make people's lives better. Uh, we wanted to make them more effective. And so so I, honestly, I never really thought that it was going to be hard for me to raise enough money for me to do that, especially with kind of like the side hustle kind of thing that I was going at the time and just kind of thought like, oh, I'll, I'll, I can always make ends meet. Like this is what I want to do at the season of my life. And I don't know if you ever heard that whole thought about half timers. Yeah. There's that whole concept of women and men who, you know, are in the professional world uh, for a season of their life, usually 25 years or so. And somewhere around 45 to 55, they make a transition to move over into the nonprofit space. They've kind of made their money, made their mark on business, learned a lot of principles, and they make it, they make a shift over. And there's a bunch of legacy people around Memphis that have done some big impact in that. I've been exposed to that kind of thought process while I was in, in business in my 20s and kind of always thought like, man, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll be a millionaire by 50 and I'll retire, but I'll, I'll get into the nonprofit space. And so when I was 32, though, and starting city leadership, I just kind of thought I was like, what if I spent a decade doing that now? And then I did business at 42. Uh, like, could I make enough money right now for the next day? I was like, I'm really hungry for this. I'm excited about this. I'm kind of whatever. Like, what if I did that right this minute? And so that was just kind of the plan. And so when I thought like, would I keep doing this? You know, for the first 10 years, I never had that thought in my head ever. Like, I just always thought like, oh, I'll always be able to do this for 10 years. Like, and then uh, I'll figure out a way to do it. And in fact, the biggest decision I had to make, Sam, was, was not about, can I make this happen for 10 years? It was pre-deciding at the beginning of that, that no matter what happened, I was only going to focus on this for 10 years because I, I kind of had this thought like, well, if I'm successful at this, I'm going to get job offers. Or if I'm as successful at this, I'm going to get whatever. Or if I get burnt out, like I can't just quit, like whatever. I, like, like I need to invest, like, you know, invest a season in this. Uh, one of the things that I say in consulting leaders all the time is that leaders all the time, overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and they underestimate what they can accomplish in five years and they never even think about what's possible in 10. Saying that to leaders all the time, I was like, well, to be helpful in Memphis, like I'm not going to be able to do anything in a year, right? And so like, let me get really aggressive in what I could do in five. And then as I got aggressive in five, then I thought like, well, then we'll just see what happens between five and 10 because I don't even know how to imagine what the world's going to be like in 10 years, right? And so I just pre-decided that no matter what job offers came or what temptations came or whatever, I was not going to entertain those. I was going to stay focused on helping Memphis through this kind of strategy and thought. And that was the biggest focus. Well, then towards the end of that 10-year commitment, like, I mean, when we started, we had a, what we called a supernova date, which was supposed to be May 31st, 2020. I thought, oh no, right? Like, like. <laughs> Here this date comes and, and we still like, and I still like doing this and different kind of stuff. And my board and, you know, a lot of my teammates were like, what's the plan? You know? And so at the end of 2018, I had to make some really, really thoughtful decisions around, okay, 
what is city leadership doing after that date? And what is John Carroll doing uh, after that date? And really what it ended up being was I took a season to kind of reimagine, all right, if city leadership continues to exist after, you know, uh, May of 2020, what does it do? Right. And so I kind of wrote a new 10 year plan. And then I had to really ask myself is like, do I want that job? Cause it was a new job as a new kind of thing as a new, whatever. Now, again, it's the same executive director role, same office, same whatever. But, you know what I'm saying? It was a new job. It was kind of a new purpose, a new kind of thing that everything had evolved into. And really what I went to is like my, my COO, Grant Edwards, and my board and just kind of said like, hey, this is where I see the next 10 years going. And I'd like to have that job. Like, I'd like to do that. And uh, we embarked on that big journey, you know, January of 2020. And like everybody else, we smacked the wall of uh, COVID and quarantine uh, by March. And we've been uh, kind of wrestling through some of that for a couple of years and then really trying to, uh, we're, we're on our feet and kind of getting after it. But man, um, we didn't shoot out of the gates as effective on uh, our, like we did as our first mission where it felt like, you know, we were in a boulevard of green lights, you know, 2010 to, to 2013, whereas in 2020 to 2022 has felt like stop and go and confusion and whatever. And the only thankful piece of that is that's been the whole world story, not just ours. And so we haven't been alone in that, uh, even if it's felt lonely, you know. Yeah. Was it up and down to fund it, to build it out? Was there ever any point where you're like, man, this might not work? We have had a unique funding reality where uh, our angle has been uh, working with generous Memphians who want to see us give stuff away. So we have not had that problem historically. I think where we've run into it now post-COVID, if, if that's such a thing, is our aspirations for this next season of work. Uh, are going to take significantly more funding. And so right now, it's not that we think it's not necessarily going to work. It's just that where is the next level of funding going to come from? So, you know, the last several years, we're a a $2 million plus organization with 20 full-time people and, and, and lots of different things that we're doing. I think our aspirational impact needs 30 employees. I think we need over $3 million a year. And I think that, you know, identifying more money uh, on this side of COVID and in this economic climate uh, isn't the easiest thing to do in the world. And, and honestly, our biggest thing that we give away is talented people and, and talented people are increasingly more expensive. You know, the, the job market has pushed up, you know, pricing and costs and all that kind of stuff. And, and inflation has pushed the cost of living up. And so, so not only is having 30 people expensive before COVID, but now it's even more expensive afterwards and so and, and competitive. And the problems get more complex and you need more experienced and more other people. So, so I think right now we're wrestling with is how quickly can we identify significant and stable funding? Because like having somebody give you $100,000 one time, that's really nice be awesome. I'd love for somebody to do that today. But you can't really go hire somebody based off that because then you're going to run out of that money at some point. And so like you need three-year commitments, four-year commitments, five-year commitments to add people uh, to stuff. And our real problem as a nonprofit is, is that we can't go the traditional fundraising route like 
an auction or a golf tournament or an art show or some of these kinds of things. If we do, we end up being competitive with our uh, clients, right? So like we're the ones designing the golf tournament, right? We're the ones designing the art show. We're the ones coming up with uh, the ideas around the auction dinner and helping that get to another level of success. And so um, we're trying to help them develop those kinds of things. And so that thing becomes really, really hard. And so we, we need some significant more partnership to kind of get it to the next level of what we're hoping to accomplish for our city by, by 2030. So if there was none of your work for the last 10, 11 years, how would the city have felt that? Mm. I hope that somebody else would have stood in the gap of that need. And maybe we wouldn't have felt it at all. And maybe I was just happened to be the first one there and, and somebody else did it. I think that ultimately, you know, light shines out and, uh, and overcomes uh, darkness pretty easily. You know, uh, all you got to do is just turn a light on and darkness goes away. And so, and so I think that any space of darkness, uh, you know, the obvious answer is light. And so I think that um, hopefully people would have, have done that in a pretty easy way. And this definitely is not all me, right? Like there's a lot of people who played into creating this and shaping this kind of stuff, but we've kind of towed that line between optimism, uh, humility, and a chip on our shoulder, (laughs) right? Like when we talk about Memphis and really what it's been is just like, there's just a lot of pride in that. And so even if somebody else would have told more good stories or filled in more good things in that season that where we really kind of uh, created a lot of inertia for our community. I don't know if they would have uh, done it as well as the people around me that were really stewarding that aspect of our organization did like, you know, Michael Phillips and Lisa Williams and and, and still today, you know, uh, Shelby Smith and Adam Chambers and, you know, Amanda Hill and, you know, Noah Glenn and Keith Montgomery and all these people who have been this unbelievable piece of it. I hate even naming names because, you know, there's tons of other people like, you know, Joy Taylor and Luke Pruitt and others that have such an impact in, in shaping what Choose Not All become. But really, it's just tried to be a mirror and reflection and that spotlight and, uh, you know, megaphone of what Memphis really is. And so, so I think we did it uh, the right way. I think ultimately we, we also did it and, and we still do this uh, with encouraging other people to join the space. So since we're not a for-profit and we're not trying to be competitive, uh, we're actually trying to be complementary. Like I love what's happening over at Isla Memphis Block. Like I hope that they double in size this next year. You know, I'm on the board and helped encourage and raise the money to start We Are Memphis. And so, you know, everything's going to the soul. Like, it needs to happen. I talk to Dave French probably every week. I love what he's doing. I want him to quadruple in size and impact. You know, everything that's happening with tone and the unapologetic and that whole voice of coming out of Orange Mound, like, it needs to be recognized, magnified, and put on an international scale, not just in a neighborhood kind of stuff. It's a promoted in a big way. And I think that all that really matters. Plus, like, I mean, the Daily Memphian, like, I love what Eric's doing over there and the Eric Barnes, whatever. And they are doing more and more of what we do. They've created a lot of uh, space and whatever. But I think all those places would say that they 
learned and gleaned from some of the things that we tried and failed and tried and succeeded in doing to try to figure out how to talk about Memphis in a way that feels authentically positive and you know aspirationally motivational. So what you're saying is somebody else would have done it. It's not like it wouldn't have been done and you would have wanted other people to do it. But y'all's hand has been in a lot of progress and momentum where others have continued to do this work. Is that what you're saying? I am. But what I would say is that the unique space of it is because of what Choose Not One's angle is, especially from the heart and core of it was to recruit people to Memphis or retain talent in Memphis, is that we made people want to identify themselves as Choose Not One, right? So like Teach for America, Memphis Teacher Residency, Downline, SOS Academy, Youth Villages, St. Jude, AmeriCorps, you know, uh, all these orgs that are recruiting, you know, college students to town, we help them become Memphians. And that just really created this like indoctrinal kind of stuff. And what people don't realize is as they become Memphians, you know, especially with their social media, everything they share about Memphis, there's not a lot of Memphians seeing it. It's everybody who sees it is from wherever they're from, right? Indianapolis or Charlotte or Birmingham or whatever. And so the positive impact of making these social media generation over the past decade, uh, making them want to positively share out to the rest of the world, it's shaped how the rest of the country views Memphis because these high potential, highly impacting, obviously community loving college graduates are telling the rest of the world, hey, I intentionally moved to Memphis. It wasn't an accident. I wasn't forced here, right? I chose 901 and I love it here. I love that. I love this space. I love the, I love all these things about it. And so that ends up hitting thousands and thousands and thousands of impressions, millions of impressions of positivity out there in that space. And then they go home and we win the Thanksgiving conversation, right? That's the real big goal is that I want all these people, wherever they live, whether it's in Memphis or Washington, D.C. or California, when they go home for Thanksgiving, I want to win the conversation of how's Memphis. I want everyone to be able to answer that question with, man, it's awesome. I love it here, blah, blah, blah. They never have to answer it's perfect, right? No city's freaking perfect. And like I said before, you can know Memphis so well that you know clearly it's not perfect, right? But you can know that it's, it can also be awesome. And it can be fun and it can be engaging and it can be exciting. And that's the conversation I want to win. And so I think that we uniquely won that at the individual level versus mass marketing kind of stuff that happens with most of these other campaigns that are at a PR level kind of thing. So you had this idea 10, 11 years ago that you were going to consult and you were going to raise money for your salary so you could serve other nonprofits and they didn't have to pay you and that would help the city that you loved. But as a result of that, you saw a problem and all these people had the same issue and they had jobs that they had open and they wanted to fill those jobs. So you started Choose 901 as a way to solve that problem, to talk about the character, the personality, all these things going on in the city that you care about. And as a result, that's what it's become today. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it's even hard for me to comprehend like, yeah, it's probably true. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not just fair, but it's probably true. And I think that it sounds um, uh, in some ways arrogant or I'm not being humble or whatever to talk about some of those kind of things. 
And at the same time, as a, like a perfectionist maximizer, you know, whatever, I'm like, I'm thinking about all the ways that we failed, all the ways we could be better and all the ways that we could do and make a bigger impact, you know, in, in the same ways that I'm sure the Grizzlies think about, uh, you know, all the games they could have won uh, or what, if, you know, what if they could have uh, stayed healthy one season or whatever. Right. So I, th- I think that's, I think that's fair. I think the reality is still is that we just never intend to do this, but now that we've done it, we're leveraging it for the most good possible. And that's why we've created all the spinoffs, you know, teach 901, you know, serve 901, choose 901 alumni and this give 901 campaign. We're leveraging this audience and trying to give them opportunities to be able to engage in the city that they care about in their own unique ways. So what's next? Well, I think, I mean, it's the now, um, I mean, but basically in our consulting, as we were consulting with stuff, as we found were the schools we were working with and we were recruiting teachers for them and we were working on new websites for some of the schools from our school clients. Uh, these are charter and private schools. We were working with some of these schools around making websites to help them market themselves for talent uh, for teachers, but also for students. And so how do you market to parents? And and what we found were is that uh, the schools we were working with were extremely successful in educating students and the grades that they were had in school were higher than their peer uh, schools that they would, you know, in their own zip code. Their graduation rates were amazing. A lot of the schools have a 100% graduation rate, you know, or upper 90%, which is, again, amazing compared to their peer schools. Uh, their college acceptance rates uh, were like 100%. But there was just a lot of work that uh, was not really being measured past that point on what was really happening there. There was some thought and some desire and some kind of some qualitative knowledge around this story or this person was struggling or this person was being successful, but not really kind of at a scale. And about uh, seven years ago, I started really seeing this opportunity of going, man, we're, we're working so hard to build a pipeline into Memphis of college graduates to whatever. I was like, what if all these high schools and schools that we were working with as clients what if once they, their high school graduates uh, came out, what if we worked with them as they went through college and helped bring them back to be this, to actually be this pipeline? Collectively, the schools we were working with were for had, you know, were on the way towards and now produce, you know, over 400 alumni every single year. And so I was like, well, that's how many people we need to recruit for all this kind of stuff. And not that they'd have to fill all that kind of deal, but thinking, as you can imagine, right? Like, man, if you could just retain 10% or 20 or 30% of that, you know, back towards some of this kind of stuff. And that was kind of the initial thought. And so, but then over time, as we pursued kind of understanding and tracking that audience and thinking through it, what we found were was that, man, after high school, life gets really, really hard for someone who was born in poverty and whose parents made a lot of effort to put them through a, a unique education space to give them maybe opportunities they didn't get to have. But college is way more complex than being academically prepared. Uh, navigating a career is way more complex than just having a degree. Uh, and so the fragility of a first-generation collegian who's living in poverty or whose family's currently in poverty, I mean, 
such tiny, tiny things can throw off that experience in, in school that it's them not being able to go to school, right? Or not being able to finish that degree. Man, here's a crazy stat. 86% of Fortune 500 hires already had a friend or a relative at that company uh, before they even applied. Well, like if you're a first-generation collegian from Memphis and you go off to college in Knoxville or Spelman or Howard or something, what is the likelihood that you even know someone who works at AutoZone or FedEx or ALSAC or whatever to even apply at one of these kind of places, right? And even if you did, how does your application get out of the pile? And so, of course, you end up working at Pilot or Coca-Cola or in D.C. somewhere because... Well, your advisor, your coworker, your intern there or whatever, like, and that's how you end up. And then we end up exporting all this kind of talent. And so that was in that 2018, 2019 is kind of thinking like, hey, instead of just having relationships, with these people like, this is the future of Memphis. Like there's enough people here. We could, we could be a part of really creating the tipping point. Like what if we spent 10 years focusing everything on these specific students and doing for them what we wish we could do for all. And what if we could help these alumni uh, not only succeed in persisting through their uh, next level of education, whether it be community college or some sort of degree like HVAC or electrician or beauty school or a four-year degree or their master's or whatever, and then helped recruit them back to Memphis and then helped them, you know, actually take over the city. And I mean that in the most positive way possible, like help actually bridge the gap between boomers and passing the baton to this next generation of leadership and getting really strategic, you know, corporately and helping set up those relationships where they could actually be hired and pursued and thought after. Every corporation in town asks me all the time, hey, I want to be real intentional in our hiring. I want to hire locals. I want to hire Memphis. I want to hire whatever. But the reality is, is that the HR departments aren't really looking at, like they've got a hundred applications and trying to get that one application through the loop is really hard. And so you have to build pipelines and systems. And the reality is, is that if we do that enough and if we focus enough and we think through all that kind of stuff enough, we actually, if we actually look at high, our high school stuff that's happening and not look at high school graduation and college acceptance as the finish line, but yet look at that as kind of lap one. And that junior and senior year of high school being where the baton starts getting passed to another energy or effort for the next 10 years, 10 years really of walking through these alumni's life where they walk through this next season, this, you know, we call it the first five, kind of the first five years of post high school where they're getting educated and figuring themselves out. And then that next five is they're entering into the workforce and, uh, and really navigating uh, nav- I mean, kind of stuff and really passing that baton for them to have another lap of focus. Like that's really powerful. And so we've been doing that for a while now. We have over 2,000 what we call Choose 901 alumni. Uh, by 2030, we'll have over 6,000 alumni. And you know, 96 plus percent of these alumni uh, come from places of poverty. They are 90 Seven, 98%, you know, black or brown uh, students, 85 plus percent first generation collegians. I mean, it just, the numbers are really radical and they come from poverty. And here's the crazy stat. In the United States, if you're born in poverty, 16 out of 100 people are out of poverty by the age of 30. Only 16 out of 100 in the United States. Sam, in Memphis, that number is six. Six out of 100 kids born in poverty will be out of poverty by age of 30. That is 
crazy. In, in the zip codes where our schools are, it's one to two percent. One to two kids out of every hundred kids in the last 50 years born in poverty are out of poverty by the age of 30. That is a travesty, right? And so what we've found in our last seven years is working on this kind of stuff and as we've been litmus testing this stuff, we just did a survey of our young adults who are 23 and older. We don't have a lot of 30 year olds, but we have 650 of them that are 23 and older. And our survey results uh, show us that of the surveyed ones, 53% are out of poverty by the age of 23. And that's how we move the needle. 82% are living in Memphis. That's how we move the needle, right? We still got time to get them out of poverty and kind of move that kind of stuff. But if, I, and then we're not just getting them out of poverty so they can consume and criticize the city, Sam. What we're doing is, is we're convincing them that they should choose 901. And what it means to choose 901 means is that you believe that Memphis is the premier city in the country for you to invest and enjoy your life, right? Where you can take initiative for the benefit of others. You can try to love your neighbors. You love yourself. You can identify problems in your community and try to solve them. And you can have a blast while you do it. Right. And we're trying to network these people together. They don't all come from the same schools. They don't all uh, you know, share the same uh, zip codes and all that kind of stuff. We're trying to network them together and say, hey, this is your city. Like, take it over. And our big goal is, is not only to be successful with these alumni, Sam, but I'm trying to go out and find people like you, people like me, people older than us, people that have had good chances and stuff before to join Give 901 and be a part of supporting these alumni. Right. Uh, we ask everybody to give now. We give one hour of pay, one hour of time towards this pipeline of making a difference for the city of Memphis. And so, if you make twenty bucks an hour, give twenty bucks a month. If you make forty bucks an hour, give forty bucks a month. But then also volunteer, mentor, give back, serve, advocate, hire. You know, res- read resumes, do practice interviews, be a part of this. And so, our big hope for Memphis is is that by twenty thirty, we'll not only have six thousand alumni who want to choose nine hundred one. But we'll have 6,000 Give 901 uh, members who believe they want to choose 901 as well. And we inter- interject these people together, right? Where they come together in happy hours, uh, you know, social clubs, you know, business meetups. Uh, they try to hire each other, you know, interns, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so we're networking these people together for the force of good and trying to create a tipping point for Memphis. It's not the only good thing that's happening in Memphis, but it is a good thing. And we're inviting anyone and everyone who wants to be a part of it to come join us in uh, making this happen. So what you're saying is you've helped make an, a dent or an impact on the problem on people coming here and created this brand that gets viral or people talk, people talk about the stories around the country and it's created this authenticity and connection to the brand. Now what you're seeing is you see the challenges that people have staying in college. You see the challenges that people have getting out of poverty. You see statistics. You talked about Six percent if you're born into poverty in the city of Memphis, and two percent if you're in certain areas where these schools are. Sixteen percent nationally, the statistics. So now you're taking it a step further to really try to serve and impact the people that you see before they even get to college, and help them feel a part of something, and help them have connections and resources to navigate that to truly make a difference from a generational standpoint. Is that fair? Yeah, and it's awesome. Right. And so like, you know, and I, I get excited about it. It's not something I can do on my own. And honestly, it, again, just like choosing I want, we didn't set out, we didn't create this organization to do this. 
we just started working with the good guys, helping them do more good. And we just looked for ways to develop their effectiveness and catalyze their networks where it became, you know, working more and more together. And this just seems like the obvious best use of this, of our time, right? And stewarding the resources we have. You know, we said at the beginning in 2010, I was like, man, if Memphis just believes in itself, anything could be possible. And so what if over the next 10 years, we just help Memphis believe in itself? And then now that Memphis believes in itself, right? 2011, our survey results showed that only 31% of Memphians felt optimistic about the city's future. I mean, we've had surveys recently show 74%, right? So, I mean, the city's flip-flopped from pessimism to optimism, right? So, the city believes in itself now, right? By and large, 7 out of 10 people believe that in Memphis's future. Well, now we're looking at this decade and saying, all right, if we've been sowing seeds of optimism for 10 years, what does it look like to harvest the optimism, right? And so, that's what we're trying to do right now. How do we harvest this optimism, uh, and how do we harvest it in the sense that we have these young adults who believe Memphis is cool and they want opportunities here. They just don't have a network and, and, and they need help finishing off what they've been promised in the sense of college or secondary education and network and that kind of stuff in their hometown. But also, how do we harvest the optimism of all these Memphians who are like, yeah, Memphis is awesome. I just don't know where to plug in. Where do I give? Where do I volunteer? Where can I actually make a difference? And there's a bunch of places you can. I'm just saying that if you're looking for one, we will help you figure that out. Like we can plug you in and make you, help you make a difference. And, and that's what I'm advocating for. And it's not about, you know, none of that time or energy or effort goes anywhere else other than right here in the 901. Man, I wish I could go keep rolling. This has been awesome. Always <laughs> been very impressed with how you've bootstrapped this and the team that you have and where it started, where it is today, the impact you made. Thanks, Sam. Well, man, I appreciate you, man. You've been doing a great job of, finding stories all over the city, finding people, telling their stories, and you did a really good job of interviewing them in a way that allows us Memphians to learn about our own place, uh, but us leaders also to be inspired by our peers and the people who've come before us. And, uh, uh, man, I've been really grateful for the energy and effort you've put into this passion project that's, uh, man, now led to a bunch of other things uh, that's good. So appreciate your I mean, your incredible interest and, you know, just uh, curiosity and how you formed all that in a way for to share with all of us, man. Appreciate you, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show. And you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.